treasure hunters. Thank you so much for your support. I launched this podcast about a month ago, and we're hitting our 1,000th download now. It's been an absolute blast, and it keeps me trying to provide better content. We also have a Facebook group that's moderated by Robert Jenner of the Fan Film Boys podcast. It's called The Reliquary, the Lost Treasure podcast group. And it's not just about the podcast. Come discuss lost treasures, unsolved mysteries, or anything you might think might spark conversation. And check us out on Twitter, at Lost Treasure Pod. And now, on to the show. November 25th, 1934. Belgium, a little bit French, a little bit rock and roll. A country as deep and rich as its waffles. Land of speculos, smurfs, beer, and other words that show up when you Google famous Belgian things. But of all things Belgian, nothing is more quaint and welcoming than its towns and villages, which still capture that old world European mystique. Dendermond was one of those cities, a place that hadn't changed its aesthetic since the medieval ages. Dendermond was one of those quiet, if not busy, little cities where nothing particular dramatic ever seemed to happen. People went about their business. They were polite to their neighbors, and at the time, this being between world wars, chaos and ruin were still, thankfully, a few years away. In the Hall of St. Mary's College, a Catholic political rally is about to commence. Men in appropriate attire shuffle into their seats and wait for the talks to begin. Arsene Geidischer, a stockbroker and director for the nearby Art Academy of Veteran, ascends the podium to address the crowd. But as he begins his talk, his speech suddenly slurs, and in a matter of seconds, the unfortunate director falls backwards onto the floor. He is quickly rushed to the nearby house of his brother-in-law, Ernest, where medical examiners discover that Geidischer has just suffered a massive heart attack. Unfortunately, it happens to be one of those massive heart attacks that most people don't really recover from, and much to everybody's grief, the proper parties are called in to conduct Geidischer's final affairs. Among the summoned is the lawyer, Georges Devaux. Kneeling by the gentleman's deathbed, the lawyer asks if there are any last wills or directives he should carry out. But Geidischer was in a weakened state, and it was hard to hear the man. You might say he was feeling a little bit... Flemish. With a faint, trembling voice, Geidischer utters the words, I alone know the whereabouts of the mystic lamb. To the uninformed, these would appear the words of a confused, dying man. But DeVoe was anything but uninformed, and when he heard Geidischer's startling proclamation, he too probably almost went into cardiac arrest. So DeVoe immediately pressed for confirmation. I mean, it was possible that the man could just be delirious in his condition, after all. But Geidischer continued, saying, The information is in the drawer on the right of my writing table, in an envelope marked Mutualité. With a faint smile, he shut his eyes and said, But I take the secret with me. And then he passed away. 
perplexed and deeply concerned, the lawyer traveled to Geidesher's home in the nearby town of Veteran and found the envelope just as described in the right drawer of the director's desk. Inside the envelope was a collection of unsent letters, carbon copies of other letters, and three keys. On top of the envelope, DeVoe found a carbon copy of a typewritten directive, and its contents caught his eye. Now, I've truncated and reworded the contents of the letter, so know that this is not a perfect transcription. Dear Monsignor, We have the privilege to inform you that we have in our possession two of the paintings of Van Eyck, which were stolen from the cathedral of your city. We are of the opinion that it is better not to explain to you how we have come into the possession of these treasures. It just so happens that the knowledge of where these two pieces are kept are known to only one individual, and this fact should interest you because it implies terrifying possibilities. We propose to deliver the two paintings on the following conditions. First, we shall give you, as a sign of good faith, the panel depicting St. John. After you have received this painting, you will deliver to us a million Belgian francs in 90 notes of 10,000 and 100 notes of 1,000. This money will be wrapped, sealed, and placed in a package emblazoned with the seal of the diocese. Then you will wrap everything on parcel paper stamped with an ordinary signature. Furthermore, Monsignor, you will take caution to ensure that none of these notes will be registered with the authorities before they are delivered. And finally, you shall take on the commitment to convince the authorities to cease all legal actions and drop the case definitively. After the money is delivered, and presuming there are no difficulties in the exchange, you will receive the whereabouts where you may collect the just judges. We're aware, of course, that the demanded amount is high, but a million francs can be regained. Nobody can paint another Van Eyck. If you accept our conditions, of which I am sure you will do, you will proceed by publishing an ad in the miscellaneous section of Le Dernier Era newspaper on May 14th and 15th with the following text. D.U.A. In agreement with the authorities, we accept your proposition. We encourage you to move with haste, and do not linger over your answer, because every day that passes increases the chance that the paintings will become damaged. Take heed. Any attempt to refuse or compromise this arrangement will result in the automatic and irreparable destruction of these masterpieces. Signed, D.U.A. DeVoe put down the letter and then said out loud, what in the actual f***? Nah, he didn't say that. But it was all still pretty nuts, and even more nuts was the other more explicitly incriminating note, presumably written by none other than Mr. Geidischer. And this letter was not a copy. It was, as would soon be discovered, unsent. If anything, this one was more of a confession, and a final hint as to the whereabouts of that which was stolen from the cathedral. The letter said, What you seek rests in a place where neither I nor anybody else can take it away without arousing the attention of the public. DeVoe couldn't have possibly known at the time that the letters he had just uncovered were only a small piece of a larger, stranger puzzle 
and a search for the most infamous painting of all time. It is a hunt that has been going on for the last 80 years. Jan and Hubert van Eyck, born at the start of the 1400s, were Renaissance men, literally. Not much is known about either of the brothers, and to drive that point home, only 20 or so paintings are attributed to Jan van Eyck, and only one of them really sort of exists anymore. We do know they were born and active around Bruges, and Jan became the court painter to John of Bavaria. For two men whom there is very little information recorded, the van Eycks, especially Jan, left their mark on the artistic world forever, incorporating a more realistic and proportional depiction of humanity than had ever been seen up until that time in Northern Europe. Van Eyck's position granted him artistic freedom, and that was rare among artists of this time period, and this may have allowed him free reign to develop new techniques. He was so lauded by his contemporaries and those who came after that a myth was frequently passed around that he had invented the medium of oil painting. He did not. So the Van Eycks are living it up in Flanders, stupid sexy Flanders, and the city of Ghent is the place to be because there's a renaissance going on and all of humanity is like, hey, we should really try doing better at things. It's a time of relative peace in this part of Europe, and patronage of the arts is at an all-time high. And there's a few bigwigs in Ghent who are throwing all this money around. One of these figures is a city alderman by the name of Jus Vied, who was also known by his gangster rap name of Jodicus. I'm only making the rap part up, but that was really what people called him. As a wealthy merchant and alderman, he helped bring the city into a period of political stability and economic prosperity. His family was supposedly very chummy with some of the Flemish kings, and Jodicus himself was rubbing elbows with the Duke of Burgundy. Big deal. He was married to a noblewoman named Lisbeth Bourlut, and though they pretty much had it all, the couple never got around to producing an heir. Obviously, this meant they had some money to spend around, and they thought it would be cool to cement their legacy. While most philanthropic couples just get their names on a park bench or a highway and call it a day, Jodicus and his wifeicus decided it would be cooler to fund the greatest altarpiece the world had ever seen. So the Jodicuses saw the Van Eyck's work and said, Hey, you two, we like you paint the greatest work of art Europe has ever seen up until now. Okay, thanks, bye! And because they were practically packing up truckloads of Belgian francs to the Van Eyck's doorstep, the Van Eyck's were probably like, yeah, cool, we can, we can totally do that. Documentation over the centuries tells us that Hubert was the brother who started the work, and most likely constructed the intricate framework and overall structure of the panels. Jan did most of the painting in detail, which included what was basically the Judeo-Christian version of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. 
Though there is no conclusive evidence, it is believed that the painting also involves clockwork mechanisms, which may have been part of a music box component. The Ghent altarpiece would take over a decade to complete in its entirety, and Hubert van Eyck would not see it completed before he presumably went to go chill with most of the saints, prophets, and apostles portrayed in that very same painting, who I hope were all really jazzed to see his flattering portrayals of them. Except Thomas. Nothing ever satisfies Thomas. And there you have it, The Adoration of the Mystic Lamb, which is not the name of a prog metal album, but may just be one of the most important pieces of religious artwork of all time, a close follow-up to the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. It is also considered one of the first oil-painted artworks in human history, so it has that going for it as well. The Adoration isn't just a triptych, but a polyptych, That means it's a multi-tiered, multi-paneled painting that you can open up in order to unleash the full effect. It measures at 11 feet by 15 feet and contains 12 panels in total, one for each apostle. Yeah, even you, Judas. The panels depict a veritable who's who of the Christian Bible. You got your Jesus in the form of the Lamb of God right in the middle, center portion because obviously, then God is at the top flanked by Mary and John the Baptist, There's some angels, some martyrs, some prophets, Adam and Eve, who get their own panel at the far most sides. Basically, the gang's all here. The brothers Van Eyck even included figures that were more contemporary to the time period, such as recent popes. The overall piece is absurdly detailed in ways paintings had never been done before, and was probably like looking at virtual reality for most observers at the time of its making. It's amazing to think of what people could do with so much free time, without the distractions of Facebook and Netflix. Okay, so the plague may have been kind of an issue back then, but when you were a well-funded artist, you could devote your whole passion and life's work to painting masterpieces. The Van Eyck's had it good. Oh, and if that weren't enough, the whole thing also has a painted back portion of panels too, so you have something to look at when the display is shut. Some of the icons depicted here are other religious figures, such as the Angel of the Annunciation, but the Van Eycks took time to include their patrons and donors as well, painted true to life in the outer panels, possibly the very first example of a Kickstarter reward. But the panel known as the Just Judges has always been cited as the most mysterious frame. For one, who are these judges, and what are they judging? The inscriptions on the frame make reference to some of the judges of the Old Testament, but these figures were rarely included in religious works. Maybe the Van Eycks had some extra space to fill. Other art historians have pointed out that two of the judges and knights in this panel bear an uncanny resemblance to portraits of Jan and Hubert Van Eyck, kind of like the artist brothers doing their Renaissance version of a Hitchcock or Stan Lee cameo. Another figure is believed to be the main patron of the work himself, Judicus, and still There are those who think that the painting contains darker secrets, but that gets a little weird, and we'll delve into that later. Not only is the Adoration one of the most celebrated pieces of human art in, like, the last thousand years or so of human civilization, but it's also been called one of the most frequently stolen artworks of all time. I mean, this thing cannot just stop getting accolades. It only took 150 years before one of the oldest oil paintings in existence 
experienced one of the oldest human pastimes, which is ruining things for others. In 1566, those pesky Protestants were running amok, nailing theses to doors, setting fire to indulgences, and telling the Pope to shove off in favor of a more chill relationship with God. But not all Protestant sects were the same. While most Protestants were all about power to the people, the Calvinists were kind of like this cynical grunge rock version, advocating things like predestination and basically making everyone feel terrible about themselves. So in Ghent, you've got St. Bavo's Cathedral smack dab in the middle of the Reformation, and here come a bunch of angry Calvinists going, hey, here's a famous thing that Catholics seem to like, why don't we light it on fire? The angry Ma manages to batter down the door and march into the cathedral, where they find not the altarpiece, but a crudely drawn picture of the Pope flipping them the bird. Okay, so really they found nothing, because only a few hours earlier, some wise guy had leaked to the guards that the Calvinists were starting some crap, and they moved the panels to the church tower. It was a close call for the mystic lamb. Religious weirdness once again nearly proved to be disastrous for the altarpiece in 1781. By now, the painting was widely acclaimed, pretty much the Mona Lisa of its time, and anybody who was anybody came to Ghent to view it. This is the time of the Holy Roman Empire, and what do you know, but in walks Emperor Joseph II of Bohemia, who had come to see what all the fuss was about. So he gets to the front of the altar, gives the painting the once over, and then the Bohemian Emperor declares, Thunderbolts and lightning, very, very frightening, and oh my god, look at Adam's wang just flopping out there in the middle of this church. I'm scandalized. After his attendants revived our little shrinking violet, the emperor demanded to speak to the manager, or in this case, the mayor of Ghent. Joseph II told the mayor that, while the painting was no doubt a masterpiece, he was a little bit triggered at the Van Eyck's very anatomically correct renderings of Adam and Eve, and he pretty much laid it out that he was thinking of confiscating the whole thing, which, to be fair, may have been just a very thinly veiled attempt to steal the whole body of work for himself. Pretty sneaky, sis. The mayor obviously wasn't going to let some high-fooding emperor tell him what to do with his city's claim to fame, so he had the altarpiece hidden in the archives for a few decades, presumably until the emperor forgot about all the shenanigans, and then commissioned two artists to replicate the Adam and Eve panels with all their naughty bits covered by bear skins, swapping them out for the real deal, which would be kept safe until society decided to get over itself. Fast forward to the end of the 1700s, which is an interesting time in Europe, thanks in part to the efforts of an average-sized man named Napoleon Bonaparte, Emperor of France. Now, if the French like anything, and we'll keep this G-rated, it's either a good brie or famous paintings. Charles Pichegru, one of Napoleon's generals, commands his army to snatch up as many paintings as the French can get their startlingly well-manicured hands on. When the public protests, he sends out the Napoleonic equivalent of a mass text, saying, essentially, look, we just really love art, guys. So the French get to Ghent in 1794 and cart the adoration of the mystic lamb back to the Louvre, where it goes on to become the French Empire's grandest trophy of conquest. And to rub it into the Flemish, Antoine Alexandre Barbier, in charge of the whole art operation, grabs the mic and says, Too long have these masterpieces been sullied by the gaze of serfs. They rest today on the home of liberty and sacred of equality of the French Republic. 
Like some WWE heel insulting the crowd, right? Oh, the French. Gotta love them. In addition to art, the French also love a good revolution. So they eventually kick Napoleon to the curb. And while all of this has been going on, the French royal family has been hiding out in Ghent. So in 1814, when Louis XVIII returns to the throne from exile, he thanks all the little people who kept him and his family safe by returning the altarpiece back to St. Bavo's Cathedral. Louis XVIII is still widely considered a bit of a pompous fop, but everyone pretty much agrees that this was a cool move on his part. But the mystic lamb did not stay on its home turf for very long. In 1816, the presiding bishop of St. Bavos is out of town, leaving the church in the care of the vicar general, Jacques-Joseph de Sur. And as soon as the vicar has the place to himself, he decides to jack the panels off the altarpiece and sell them to a Brussels art dealer for what would today be the sum of $3,600. <laughs> Talk about a steal. In turn, the art dealer decides that he can pawn these babies off for 120 k by selling them to a Berlin art collector named Edward Solly. There's no record of just what happened when the Bishop of St. Bavro returned to find that his own vicar had flipped the paintings in a 19th century version of an 80s teen movie party scene, but I imagine it wasn't pretty. In 1821, the Prussian king, Friedrich Wilhelm III, whose ancestor, you may recall, helped create the Amber Room, decides that he wants a Louvre of his own, so he goes and buys Edward Sully's whole collection of priceless art, including the Ghent altarpiece. Though this is pretty much public knowledge, the bishopric of Belgium just can't go up to the king of an empire and ask, hey, so can we have that back? So the altarpiece stays in the museum there until the close of World War I, when the alleys do go up to the disgraced king of the former empire and tell him, yeah, so we're taking that back. And because we know that the Germans were just a tad bit salty over the whole losing the war thing, they replaced the altarpiece with a placard that reads, Taken from Germany by the Treaty of Versailles. Ooh, that shade. And we know that around this time, a certain German individual, or should I say Austrian turned German individual with an interest for the arts, whose own artistic pursuits were rebuffed, may have visited the Wilhelm Museum and perhaps seen the empty space where the Ghent altarpiece once stood. This person went by the name of Adolf Hitler, and I imagine him standing there, pre-mustache era, clenching his fists and glaring at the Packard while a dramatic swell of ominous music plays in the background. Finally, the Ghent altarpiece is returned to St. Bavos, the cathedral with just the worst security ever. But before we get into what happens next, let's talk about Arsène Geidischer. Arsène Geidischer is born in Lied on December 23rd, also known as Christmas Eve Eve, 1876. He is one of 12 children, but by the time the just judges goes missing, only him and his brother are still alive. Arsan's dad is a disgraced elementary school headmaster who gets caught up in a funding controversy and is promptly given the boot. But apparently the powers that be in Ghent like the guy enough that they hand him over to the Cathedral of St. Bavos, where he goes on to become a sacristan, 
or the person in charge of all the priceless artifacts inside a church. Arsan goes on to become an organist and then reluctantly takes over for his father until he resigns in 1911, declaring that the biggest mistake my father made was turning me into a sacristan. Bitter much? Geidischer goes on to get hitched and starts rallying up with the conservative Catholics of Ghent, who have a little thing to say about the political state of Belgium in the aftermath of the Great War. You see, the Weimar Republic is right next door to them, and it's getting up to all kinds of debauchery. So the religious world is a bit on edge after all of this, plus the worst war Europe had ever seen. And that said, our son was reported to be a kind of wacky guy, a little bit flamboyant, and was fond of driving a Chevrolet and basically making it rain wherever he went. He himself, at least, was not so uptight. It was also known that Arsan was rather fond of a certain literary thief who shared his namesake, Arsan Lupin, a creation of writer Maurice Leblanc. Lupin is on par with Sherlock Holmes in French literature. In fact, Lupin even went toe-to-toe with the world's greatest detective himself. Lupin is a gentleman thief who gets into all sorts of scrapes. In manga and anime, his descendant, Lupin III, is one of Japanese pop culture's most well-known characters and was famously animated by Walt Disney parallel Hayao Miyazaki in his debut film, The Castle of Cagliostro. Arsène Lupin I was known to be somewhat of a colorful dandy himself and had a habit of leaving calling cards or notes before and after committing his crimes. No wonder Geidischer styled his own persona off of this phantom thief. You can't hear it, but I just winked to all of the nerds out there. They know why. So, finally, we arrive on that fateful night of April 10, 1934. The next day, the new sacristan, Van Volsum, arrives to perform his morning ablutions when he stops in shock at the front of the altar because the panels of the just judges and John the Baptist are missing. The sacristan and the church canon immediately go to the police, and soon there's a mob of horrified gawkers crowding into the cathedral as word gets out. Ghent Police Commissioner Antoine Leistenborg shoves his way through the crowd and declares the whole thing a hot mess because any forensic evidence he could have taken has been compromised by the onlookers. And to make matters worse, the police are all already tied up with an investigation of a crime that took place roughly around the same time as the heist, at, of all things, the cheese shop across the street. And the only thing stolen? A wheel of cheese. Okay, so remember, this is Belgium, and they don't mess around with dairy. And also, it's the Great Depression, so kind of a bigger deal back then than it would be now. Belgium is effectively locked down, nobody in or out, while the police start to perform a sweep. Eventually, the incident goes so far up the chain of command that Scotland Yard are called in to help lead the investigation. But after all of these interrogations and leads, everyone is pretty much scratching their heads, at a total loss. And then, the letters start to arrive. On May 1st, 1934, Monsignor Kopiters, the Bishop of Ghent, checks his mail and finds an unusual green envelope. Inside is the ransom letter, the one I read in the beginning, not reading it again. But the Bishop isn't an idiot, though it is a terrible predicament. 
and he decides to do the exact opposite of the letter's instructions and go straight to the police. The investigators are of the mind that they're not going to negotiate with this notorious DUA. The prosecution is out for blood, but the bishop is also like, hey, priceless painting, one of the greatest works of human civilization, hello? Monsignor is ready to commission all the church bake sales in the world in order to raise enough ransom money for these two priceless panels. And not long after this goes down, the Monsignor receives another letter, but this one includes a clue. Inside the envelope is a luggage or coat check ticket from a Brussels train station. The letter writer demands the ransom sum again and then says, in a gesture of goodwill and intent, that the police should make use of the enclosed ticket. So the investigators hightail it to the train station, and there, inside the locker matching the ticket, and wrapped in black cloth, is John the Baptist. The painting, not the guy. The police manage to track down the steward who'd taken the ticket, but the only description he can offer the investigators is that the man who gave him the unusual luggage was roughly in his 50s. So like, major plot twist, right? And it means the thief isn't getting around. About four months after this, while the poor Monsignor is probably a nervous wreck, he receives yet another typewritten letter demanding the cash. And at this point, he's like, screw it, I'm just getting this done. He chooses a priest of St. Lawrence in Antwerp to act as the intermediary, who he sends along with a suitcase containing a quarter of the ransom. And on June 15, the priest waits inside the adjacent cathedral house for the thief's contact. The doorbell rings. With a rapidly beating heart, the priest slowly turns the knob and pulls open the door to find a very perplexed taxi driver who explains that he's to take the suitcase to his passenger waiting in the car across the street. The priest cranes his neck and manages to see the sun glinting off the mysterious figure's glasses, but otherwise he's unable to get much detail. So the priest hands over the cash and the driver goes to hand it to the passenger, only to return with the suitcase. It seems the money has been rejected. The taxi driver and the shadowy figure drive off, leaving one very confused Belgian priest, in the dust, holding stacks of cash. Oh, and presumably the police were waiting in the wings the whole time, and they, for whatever reason, decide not to follow that car. Suspicious or just stupid? People have theories. And that's pretty much where things stop. After a 13th letter received in October of that year, the ransom bids cease coming in. Nobody can figure out why. That is, until Arsene Geidescher suddenly collapses in the middle of a rally and his letters are discovered in his desk drawer. For reasons that are still not quite clear, it takes Geidescher's lawyer, DeVoe, a month before he alerts the police to what he found. The investigation is in a tizzy. They think they finally cracked the case and are so, so very close to finding the just judge's panel. So they interrogate Geidescher's wife, who flat out tells him that her husband is innocent, but like, come on, lady. Unfortunately, this being before modern forensics, nobody thinks to check Geidescher's typewriter for clues, and it ends up on the desk of a young detective, and then later a junk pile. And then years later, Geidescher's wife mentions that the night her husband died, she burned some of the papers of his because she didn't think they were very important. Oh, wow. But what about those three keys that DeVoe finds in the secret envelope? One is merely the key to the garage where Arsan kept his beloved Chevy. 
The other key leads to a safe at a bank deposit, which right away everyone is like, holy crap, this is it. But I wouldn't be doing this episode if they found it there, so nope. The third key, interestingly enough, unlocks the door that leads to the roof of the cathedral, but this evidence is deemed circumstantial at best. And that, my friends, is where the trail goes cold. At least for the next few decades. Now, back to Hitler. It's World War II, and the Nazis are are doing what Nazis do best. Hitler hadn't forgotten the sting of losing the altarpiece, and he made it his prerogative to get it back. But simple revenge was not the Fuhrer's only motive in seeing the adoration return to German soil. And here's where things get a little Da Vinci code. In the inaugural episode of Relic, I made mention of Hitler's deep desire to see all of the world's treasures congregated in one secure location, a grand museum Hitler was to build and would not shut up about in his Austrian hometown of Linz. But here's the thing, the Amber Room was never Hitler's golden goose. It was just an appetizer, which just goes to show you Hitler's crazy ambition. Hitler intended to install the adoration of the mystic lamb as the centerpiece of the museum, having always known its profound intrinsic value to civilization, and also because it was created by a sort of Germanic guy and that mattered a lot to Adolf because racism. You know, now that I think about it, a lot of the world's lost treasures seem to mysteriously revolve around Hitler's plans to create this massive super museum. Almost sounds like the perfect opportunity for a season-long arc, doesn't it? You know, kind of like how the X-Files did, where they would start out and drop a few Mythos episodes along the way, and the rest were just Monster of the Week. Yeah, that's my angle now. I've decided. Anyway, that's the somewhat mundane, by Hitler's standards anyway, version of events. The Indiana Jones version is that Hitler believed that the panel of the Just Judges, widely considered to be the most perplexing and evocative of the adoration pieces, was actually a map that would lead to the collection of treasures known as the Arma Christi. These were the various tools involved in Jesus Christ's final days, including the Lance of Longinus, also known as the Spear of Destiny, the Death Shroud, draped over Christ's body, and of course, the Holy Grail, Ark of the Covenant not included. What's crazy is that Hitler is actually on record saying that acquisition of the Arma Christi, or at least some of its objects anyway, would be what it finally takes to dominate the world. And legend has it that Adolf Hitler got pretty far in this quest when he actually acquired one of these relics. But something like that is, I don't know, season finale territory? When the Nazis occupied Belgium, Hitler got his altarpiece. Only he had nowhere to put it yet. So he had the Nazis place it in the Silesian salt mines of Austria with other treasures, including supposedly the Amber Room at one point. The Hitler wanted to complete the set, and with one of the most important panels missing from the adoration, he dispatched one of his art thieves to try and locate what the Belgians had failed to find. Supposedly, this mission was thought unsuccessful, but we'll get into that mystery further on. In any case, when the Allies closed in, the Nazis planned to rage quit by blowing up the mine and all of its treasures in an act of impudent nihilism, but they were stopped by the renowned Monuments Men, whose prerogative was in securing and recovering Europe's stolen masterpieces. Thanks to them and a team of Allied troops who parachuted in, they were able to take the mine, 
while the Nazis fled with the tails between their legs. For like the seventh time, the Ghent altarpiece had been recovered and restored to its rightful home. In 1945, with the dust of the war still settling, an artist was commissioned by the government to replace the missing panel with a copy. This conservator, Jeff van der Wieken, decided that he could never hope to compete with the Van Eycks, so he deliberately changed the appearance of one of the judges to the then-current Belgian king, Leopold III. In 1986, the stewards of the cathedral, and perhaps the government, got tired of the painting being stolen all the time, so they relocated it to the more secure part of the church and put it inside a giant bulletproof glass box, like Hannibal Lecter in Silence of the Lambs. People are reportedly not too happy about this since the tin of the glass kind of does a disservice to the painting, but it certainly makes it a lot harder to steal. Now, the most interesting part of this story, which is often overlooked, isn't that an otherwise normal man managed to pull off one of the greatest art heists the world has ever known, but the reason why he did it. Our son Geidischer was reportedly swimming in Belgian francs and wasn't exactly strapped for cash. This is why some theorize that he wasn't the mastermind behind the operation, though he certainly played a role. But why on his deathbed? Didn't he just tell George DeVoe the location of the painting? Some actually believe that the real culprit, or perpetrator of the heist anyway, was Jeff van der Wieken himself. It was speculated that his replacement copy was just a little too good. Almost as if he was copying the work directly from the original, which he had in his possession, allegedly. People even went so far as to say that the replaced painting was, in fact, the just judges, painted over to hide the truth of van der Wieken's misdeeds. That would be, frankly, hilarious if true, because then it means, twist, the just judges aren't really missing at all. Fortunately, actual smart people analyzed this replacement and said, y'all are high. Conspiracy theorists then pointed to the church's bizarre level of secrecy about the whole ordeal and why they weren't as keen to let people look into the case. Some accused the church of a cover-up, one leading straight to the top, the bishop himself. We know Geidischer's father was dismissed from his headmaster position due to a funding or embezzlement scheme, so shady dealings run in the family. One theory postulates that a group of church parishioners entered into a dubious investment scheme that went belly up. It was the Great Depression, after all. Geidischer may have been among the guilty party and masterminded the theft and ransom of the panel in order to raise funds to recoup him and his fellow conspirators' losses. But critics of this argue that Geidischer was, for all of his eccentricities, a good Catholic, and one with plenty of stacks on deck. No need to try and acquire more cash. Still, greed does have strange effects on otherwise good men. Over the years, there have been plenty of detectives, official and amateur, who have tried in vain to locate the panel. One of these inquisitive souls was Carl Morchier, chief of Ghent Police from 1974 to 1991. As someone who was involved with the local law and one whose forebears were directly involved with the case, the missing just judges have always captivated him. Morchier's research uncovered several interesting pointers that may acquit the late Geidischer of his crimes. 
He noted that the gentleman in question had been plagued with terrible eye problems over the course of his life, and couldn't even see in the dark. You know, how it might look at night when you're trying to rob a Middle Ages cathedral, presumably by yourself. And this is why the former chief of police believes that if it was Geidischer, he had to have had accomplices with him. For one, in order to lay hands on any of the panels, which were elevated quite a ways off the ground, you needed a sturdy ladder, and at least two or three people to help carry out the operation. He speculates that one of the custodians had to have been involved in the heist. And remember how I said the church was being hella secretive? While Morshe managed to access the church archives, the cathedral staff refused him access to the periods of 1934 to 1945, which was kind of the whole reason Morshe had even come to them. And this wasn't some hobbyist schlub like, say, me. This guy was a well-respected member of the community, and literally the former chief of their police. And Morshe started to suspect that the police at the time may have been in on it as well, citing continued mismanagement of evidence during the investigation, as well as being weirdly inept about one of Europe's biggest art crimes. And now, back to Hitler. When the Nazi art thieves were dispatched to locate the missing panel, they supposedly didn't find anything. The thief in question was Heinrich Kohn, who worked directly under Joseph Goebbels. Goebbels? Goebbels? Goebbels. Kohn said that the panel was originally hidden on the premises of the church, but then it was moved before he arrived. Now, obviously, after the war, the last thing the people of Belgium, and certainly the church, are going to do is corroborate a high-ranking Nazi's words. But what was uncovered years later was a strange statement taken from none other than Geidischer's wife. She said that when she casually theorized that the Germans were behind it, years before Hitler even barged into town, her husband simply smiled, villainously I hope, and said, What is misplaced is not stolen. And then he added about the police, If I were them, I wouldn't look far. If they'd only let me search for it, I'd stay within the vicinity of the cathedral. Either this woman really stood by her man, or she was the densest person ever. St. Bavo's Cathedral has been searched six individual times since the Second World War, and Morshear himself has presided over an x-ray of the cathedral's interior and depths. No such luck. In 1995, Geidischer's grave was plundered by an amateur detective, and his skull was stolen by a psychic who tried to perform a seance in it so she could summon Geidischer from beyond the grave and ask him where he hid the panel. Because that just makes sense to go to the source, right? Needless to say, this didn't do anything other than make this story even weirder. In 2001, another policeman by the name of Christian Knopp came forward with the bombshell announcement that he had actually found the just judges, kind of. He believed that the answer lay within a secret code that the thief, DUA, included in his ransom letters to the Bishop of St. Bavos. He traced Geidischer's movements to Antwerp, site of the infamous rejected transaction. By tracing the paths between Geidischer may have mailed the letters, he discovered that all of the lines converged on the crypt of the Belgian royal family in the palace near Brussels. Nope believed that the panel was actually hidden inside the coffin of King Albert I, who was killed in a climbing accident eerily around the same time that the Just Judges panel went missing. And in theory, the story kind of checks out. 
trying to break into a Belgian king's tomb, in keeping with the letter's warning, would most definitely have roused the attention of the public. But perhaps what's interesting about this claim is that Nope was, coincidentally, writing a book about the theft. Free publicity, you know, doesn't hurt. As recently as 2008, reports of the panel's discovery or whereabouts still frequently make it into the Belgian media. One such report, from an anonymous tip, said that the panel was buried alongside a skeleton under the floorboards of a local home. Sure enough, the police dismantled the floorboards and found… nothing. To this day, the case of the stolen painting remains open, and there's always been a detective from the Ghent police assigned to it. It's a strange and baffling legacy, but one that many are proud to inherit, almost as a part of local heritage. The world's oldest painting remains incomplete, but it still draws a crowd and retains its power. The adoration of the mystic lamb may also hold a deeper meaning, one that is either sinister or hopeful, depending on how you look at it. And the meaning is that the 12 panels don't merely depict a collection of various biblical figures, but a precise foretold moment. And that moment is when all questions and mysteries will finally be answered. The Book of Revelation, in addition to being one of the gnarliest books in the New Testament, accounts for the end of days, as prophesied by an imprisoned John of Patmos. If the Van Eycks drew from all sources of the Bible for their masterpiece, then there is reason to believe that they would have included aspects of this book as well. In Revelations, John of Patmos describes many visions, both mesmerizing and horrible to behold. But in the midst of this chaos, he mentions one captivating, redeeming moment when the world begins to crumble. It comes from chapter 7, verse 9, and it reads, After this I beheld many multitudes, which were impossible to count, which were of all people, generations, nations, and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Relic is written and produced by me, Maxwell. The amazing theme music you're hearing was composed by Devin. If you like this podcast and want to pass along your good judgment, you can leave a four or five star rating in iTunes so other people can find out about it. You can also connect to Relic via Twitter at Lost Treasure Pod. If you have any comments, concerns, suggestions, corrections, a story about your own lost treasure, send me an email at losttreasurepod at gmail.com. Our hosting site and blog is relic.blueberry.net, and that's blueberry without the E's. Next time, wow, we just hit our 1,000th download. Might have to do something special, something different. But as always, the adventure continues. In 1821, the Prussian king, Friedrich Wilhelm III, is it William or Wilhelm? Fuck.